Welcome to the Common Good Podcast, the podcast that showcases the very best of Glasgow Caledonian University and how the institution, its staff and its research benefits people and communities both at home and overseas. My name is Craig Telfer and today I am joined by Professor Natasha Radcliffe-Thomas from the British School of Fashion to discuss what the fashion industry can do to become more sustainable and more responsible. Natasha, thank you very much for joining me today. It's great to talk to you. I want to kick things off with quite a big question. How big is the UK fashion industry and what does it provide to our economy? The UK fashion industry as part of the wider creative industries is a really important part of our history, our current uh, existence and also our future. In monetary terms, it's estimated that it's worth around £26 billion um, pounds, and that's part of a global industry that's been valued between two to three trillion dollars depending on whether we're pre or post pandemics obviously there's been some changes in it Mm -hmm. i mean my route into fashion has been from the creative aspect so i i like to think about the sort of the pleasure and the creativity that it offers both for for producers and and for you know consumers of fashion but it can't be denied that it is a fashion business and in fact the british school of fashion that's where you know coming from the angle of how we support the business side the marketing um etc So in that context, what do we mean by the terms sustainable and responsible? Well, the sustainable aspects of fashion have become really um, the focus over the last few years. I mean, in the past, when I was first interested in fashion, you know, myself personally, and then also sort of as as a subject discipline, it was a very small, negligible part of the conversation. It sort of, wasn't even called sustainable fashion. It was sort of eco or ethical. But at the moment, that's, that's the biggest conversation that's happening in fashion today. And that's because of the enormous environmental and social impacts that are sort of the externalities of this sort of globalised fashion system. So in one sense, the fashion industry has been um, a victim of its own success. So with the growth, and in the UK, we've been really good at that kind of high street fashion, the accessible price points and probably from about the 1960s onwards you know that kind of boutique thing you know that we saw developing through you know brands like Topshop that became enormous global brands you know initially maybe were democratizing the fashion system they were making clothing you know available to more people at, at more reasonable prices but that system just sped up and sped up and with sort of globalization with the um, kind of increases in technology and digital technologies the system's just become such an enormous machine and it's an extremely extractive machine and we're only really really realizing the results of that as we look around the world and we see things like land degradation we're more aware of social justice issues you know for example with the um, the recent pandemic and we had a, obviously lockdowns around the world including factories you know we've seen that workers in other parts of the world have been denied wages and denied the right to work because companies maybe based in the UK or at least selling through the UK have cancelled orders worth mm-hmm. you know millions and millions of pounds So in that sense, you can see there are a whole range of issues within sustainability from the environmental side, the materials, you know, and the resources that go into the production of fashion. So, you know, things like water, if we're looking at a crop like cotton, you know, which is used in a lot of clothing, that's an enormously uh, water intensive crop. 
through then the kind of production in factories and then shipping around the world. And then if we think from the other side of, of textiles, things like polyester, which is used in a lot of garments, that's a kind of part of the petrochemical industry. And, and polyester is actually a plastic, which lots of people don't really understand. So we've seen a big focus on you know, things like single use plastics um, and plastics in general and their negative environmental impact. But lots of us don't really realize that the clothes that we're wearing can also be a form of plastic. And we're also understanding more about how, um, how we care or don't care for our clothes. So in terms of laundering, our clothes are shedding, plastics you know things like fleece will shed the you know what people might have heard of microfibers mm -hmm. um, and they're going into the water system but also the fact that a lot of us have got used to having very um, reasonably priced clothes the quality of which has also um, you know deteriorated over the decades means that actually some in some people's minds clothes have become more disposable Plus, we've also had um, systems, you know, the, the success of kind of buying online, for example, has meant that a lot of people are consuming more and more. It's easier access, but also returns. So all of these kind of big issues then have to be thought about when, you know, going back to your question, which is actually about, you know, what do we consider sustainable and, and responsible? I would say the responsible side is, for me, is more about the ethics. So a lot more about the people. So that could be the people who are producing garments to all all of the people involved along the supply chain so and including people working in retail and at the moment again you know there's a lot of focus on the sort of frontline workers in in retail and, and their experiences so it's kind of responsible in terms of people and ethics and then the sustainable piece there's a big discussion about if you can even have sustainable fashion what does that mean but i think i would prefer to think about it in terms of if we look at things like the sustainable development goals and sustainable development is sort of the pathway a guiding route towards sustainability um, and so some of the big conversations in the industry at the moment are about um, extending the use of garments so designing better you know the impact of a garment a lot of it is at the design stage. So thinking about the materials that you're using, thinking about designing things so that it can be uh, reworn, remade, and then what happens to them, you know, at the end of their useful mm -hmm. life. But then also thinking, you know, ensuring that you have a sustainable financial system. There's a lot of money in fashion. We know that, but it's not. It's concentrated often. Let's say in the in 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 small places. It's not fairly distributed. So how do you square that circle then? How can a business, how can a fashion business be sustainable, but also turning a profit at the same time? Well, some of my own research, I was really intrigued by that very question. And I've been really interested in um, a business model called social enterprise, which actually doesn't, and, and fashion is, is really um, getting more and more involved in this kind of area. So it's, it's sort of fashion with a purpose. And it's really about fashion as a creative response to an environmental or social problem. So some of the brands that I was interested in their business models, one of the early ones was the Toms, which started out as a footwear brand. And they had a very simple business model, which is a, called a one for one, which meant that when you bought a pair of the Toms shoes, they gave a pair of shoes to um, a child that didn't have shoes somewhere in the world. So it was a kind of poverty alleviation. It's basically a giving model. And they expanded that. And that was a for profit business. Um, so I think. For entrepreneurs, they're often incentivized by you know, the idea of making money, but it's thinking about how do you set up a business model that can have a, a, a central purpose? And I suppose it's about widening the idea of who the um, 
shareholders you know, from shareholders to stakeholders so instead of just thinking about a narrow group of people getting a return on a kind of dividend return it's thinking about how you can do the best for everyone involved in that and working more collaboratively and i think it's one of those things about where we put um value i know you've said that the conversation is changing about where people are thinking where their clothes are coming from but do they ultimately care as long as they're cheap it's really interesting when you come at this from a sort of consumer behavior and psychology angle and lots of the research shows that price is still the fundamental um, decision maker. What I would say with fashion and um, if we widen that into clothing more generally, it answers different purposes and you'll know that from your own experiences. I mean, some pieces of fashion are more you know, where I was coming from at the beginning, the creative pieces that really make your heart leap. Other things are kind of more functional. And so you're probably going to have different decision making um, when you're choosing garments for different purposes. Yeah. But I mean, what I would like to see is that the, that the, um, that the impetus and the responsibility is not put so much on the consumer. So they're not having to go through that mental checklist of, you know, materials and how things were made and et cetera. But I think what we've seen over the last, I would say at least 10 years is that more and more people are interested in that as well as the fact that consumers are starting to see that they collectively do have power to influence. So I think collectively if people decide to, to spend their money or not even spend and that's I think one of the things that we're seeing that's a big challenge for the industry at the moment is that a lot of people are it's not about which brand or which pieces they're buying they're just thinking maybe I, I'm not buying into fashion at all and I'm going to spend my money in different ways but I think we do you know we have a really you know it's a strange situation at the moment where we've got an increasing number of people saying they want to support sustainable brands they want to support brands with purpose and that number's growing but at the same time you know we saw in the uk that some of the fast fashion brands um you know that haven't had such a great reputation have also been tremendously successful so i think we're seeing you know there's parallel groups so mm -hmm. i think there's a it's a probably a minority but it's a significant minority of people who are you know spending their their pounds with purpose but there's another group of people for a variety of reasons who are not. And I think that's where, you know, for me, it's a little bit of a shame that someone like Marks and Spencer's has not managed to capitalize on their, you know, their efforts in sustainability because they're an extremely sustainable brand in terms of their um, clothing. Mm -hmm. But I don't think they've quite managed to make it with the design or the messaging. So I don't think people necessarily in the wider community would know that, that actually by choosing something, for example, from Marks and Spencer's, they would be buying into um, some more sustainable practices. And I think there's a little bit of a myth that all sustainable brands are expensive. So sometimes people are put off by that. But I think we're seeing now that there's an enormous pressure on some of the bigger kind of high street names. People like H&M have always you know, prided themselves on their sustainability initiatives, but actually they're being called to account you know, with louder and louder voices, um, you know, by people, industry watchers and members of the public to actually, you know, we have this concept of transparency. You know, what do your claims mean? Where are the actions? I think there's a, an increasing group of, of people who, who want to see the actions rather than just the commitments. So do you think the public need to be better educated about where their clothes are coming from and the, the journey from the, the fibre making all the way to them wearing it? Yeah, I think... 
Uh, I'm a great believer in education, clearly. Um, I think a lot of people are interested in that. And if they're interested in that, they should have that information. What I think we need is clear information. So there'll be a, a, you know, a small group of people who are fascinated in the whole process. But for the, you know, the, the general members of the public, maybe it's some kind of badging traffic light system, which I believe you know, from mm. my contacts, these sorts of things are all being developed. I mean, a few years ago, there was um, a brand called Honest Buy, and they were extremely transparent about every single part of their activities. So you could see, you know, which factories did which stages, how much they were paying for a zip, how much a, a hanger was, you know, every single piece that made up your garments. And that was really the beginning of this idea that we have now kind of, of radical transparency. So a lot of brands are now giving more information, but it's whether people um, you know, can understand, can access that at the point of purchase and at the point of decision-making and to have those kind of options. And I think some, the trouble is some of it is so complex because often with materials, it's the blends that are difficult. So if we think about recycling, which a lot of, you know, from my own research, a lot of consumers are interested in the idea of recycling clothes. So they, you know, when you cast them off, eventually they could be recycled. But if you have blended, so for example, cotton and polyester, it's quite hard at the moment to actually, you know, separate those. So there's all sorts of things that are extremely complex for people. But what I would really... I think one of the things we've seen in the last few months, a lot of people have taken up hobbies like sewing and knitting and mending. And I think that's really, that's a really lovely way to learn about your clothing. Mm -hmm. So I think people, you know, ha and having that pleasure in that. And then I think often what happens is people value things more once they understand. And, and I think that's been the real, you know, I talked about the success of the high street. I think the sad thing about getting clothing production really, really, cheaply is that in the uk the us and some other markets we really don't value clothing because it's become such a cheap item you know in our shopping basket and once people start to understand there's so many um you know processes that aren't mechanized i think a lot of us imagine that everything's mechanized and you know things just appear magically there's still a lot of processes that are done by hand and when you look at some of the you know the garments that are being sold you know for pennies and and, and pounds and you start to kind of work backwards and think, well, how little was someone paid at this stage, at this stage, at this stage, then it, it becomes quite problematic. So, I mean, in a sense, I think more and more people, are, I think, are educated about the materials. I think they understand that a bit better. I don't think people understand the, the resource implications like we were you know, talking about, you know, pairs of jeans and things needing thousands and thousands of gallons of water um, in terms of their production. But I definitely think it's hard for people to unpick where the value is. And, and you know, when we see fashion billionaires and their yachts at one end, it's hard to connect that, um, you know, with the social injustices at the uh, often existing at the other end of the supply chain. So I think some of that education would be interesting for people and it would help them know, because I think also people m might make assumptions about which brands are good and, and bad and, and not actually without that information. You've mentioned Tom's then, Natasha. What are other examples of good fashion businesses? Well, I think in terms of luxury, which we're very interested in at the British School of Fashion, someone like Stella McCartney has been a real kind of um, trailblazer in this. And that, I think, is a really interesting, again, example of someone coming into fashion from the design side, but actually living their values and being a kind of fashion activist, but on the inside of the industry. So she famously, as 
daughter of um, Paul and Linda McCartney is brought up vegetarian. And so in terms of her fashion line, she has never used animal products. So she's never used fur and leather, which means that she's then been at the forefront of developing alternatives. And so she's invested in a lot of alternative materials and developments, which has been a really interesting thing in the fashion industry in the last few years, this kind of um, like biomimicry and having, you know, growing leather in the lab or using you know things like mushroom to make leather and that kind of thing so I think someone like Stella McCartney has been really interesting in that and one of the things that she did that I think again is spinning off is when she was part of the caring luxury group she helped them develop their environmental profit and loss accounts which was a way for businesses you know we talked about profit making before we it's a way of businesses to try and look at okay this is the finance you know profit and loss what about the environment and so one of the things that that helps people to do as a business is understand where they're making impact and you'll you might be aware that over the last few years quite a lot of luxury brands have stopped using fur now, you might think if you're from the UK, because we're quite a strong anti-fur um, culture, that it was all about that sort of, I suppose, like the humanitarian, the animal uh, welfare side, which it, it certainly is from Stella McCartney's perspective. But actually, from a business perspective, something like fur is extremely, um, it makes a big environmental impact. So by not using fur, you can really reduce that. I mean, one of the things that was interesting from um, Stella McCartney that she shared was that when they looked at their um, supply chain and the impact, something like cashmere, so having virgin cashmere had an, a really big environmental impact, and that pushed them towards developing and using recycled cashmere for okay. all of their products. So again, she's been someone that's been kind of quite trailblazing in terms of you know leading the way for other people to follow. And I think that's one of the really nice things about the sustainable fashion area is that there are a lot of collaborations and there's a lot of sharing of knowledge and you get that whether that's at a kind of local community level so for example there's a group sustainable fashion scotland that i've been uh, involved with who've been running workshops and webinars and talking about these kind of you know these areas in their work and up to these big you know brands like stella mccartney and also someone like patagonia who again they've been at the forefront of things like repairing your clothes mm -hmm. so that's something that they started several years ago um, because they make performance wear so they make outdoor wear and you would say I mean their their customer is not necessarily a strict sort of fashion with a capital F um, customer because they're actually looking for performance it's outdoor wear you're hiking mountaineering those kind of things and also the kind of I think one of the things they've been really good at is that kind of storytelling of your clothes and understanding that the, the kind of idea of your clothes you embody your clothing and certain garments you're going to associate with certain memories and activities and so their idea of you know they want to build a really good product so use really you know quality um, techniques and materials but then also the idea you might also hold on to that so how could they help their customers and then turn repairs into you know um, a creative activity and built a lot of storytelling around that so people could say well I wore this I don't know hiking here or climbing this mountain there or every time I've gone on a summer camp or whatever and it's really nice to keep this in the family and to keep this and here's this repair from here and that's something that we're seeing more and more coming into the mainstream with fashion brands over the last um, few years. Conversely, there are some examples of fashion businesses that don't seem to be sustainable. And this is something that you touched on earlier, Natasha, 
in November last year, the fashion retailer Pretty Little Thing, they were absolutely pilloried on uh, on social media and in the press because they held a Black Friday sale and they were selling dresses and bikini tops that were going for just eight pence. How on earth can an item of clothing cost as little as eight pence? Yeah, I mean, that was... If we look at some of those, um, the brands in that kind of area of the market, one of the things they've been really good at is PR and marketing. And by doing their Black Friday sale, they got so much attention for good and for bad. So I assume for their customers delighted to be getting these, you know, so-called bargains. Um, And for others of us, you know, looking at this in absolute horror. Now, the reality is they will have been stuck with a lot of stock because of the pandemic and the lockdowns and they want to shift that. I mean, the sort of very fast fashion brands, you know, the I suppose the business model is in the name is fast fashion. They get the look in and then it has to go out quickly. And there's been quite a few behind the scenes documentaries about various of these brands uh, in the media recently. And the business model, you know, is that it's, it's seeing maybe an influencer wearing something. It's pretty much copying that and getting it produced as cheaply as you can quickly getting it online and getting it out. Now, there was a documentary a few years ago called The True Cost. And uh, I know obviously that's kind of what you're alluding to here. There's no way that that money is covering any kind of cost. There's, you know, 99p's, the pounds. But it is shifting stock. So in terms of cash flow, it's getting some money in and it's getting the stock out. You're not having to pay for it to be stuck in a warehouse or dump it. So it's a really big problem. But I mean, one of, and it also alludes to one of the problems um, that the industry suffers at all levels, which is overproduction. So just having enormous amounts of stock. Um, and this is one of the kind of areas that I think, again, a lot of um, people probably aren't so aware of. But a couple of years ago, it, from the luxury side, Burberry was yeah. held to account. To, in fact, I was just going to ask you about the, that Burberry. They had, to, they had to destroy stock. Was it for copyright reasons? They had to destroy like millions of pounds worth of stock. In the, I think it is a practice that is has been widespread in the industry that rather than selling through discount or different areas, that lots of brands would rather destroy their own stock. Because if you think about with a luxury, it's a different business model to the fast fashion, and they need to maintain the luxury image and part of that is a high price and and then if you have racks and racks of clothing being sold at discount or they're off going you know to tk maxx or or whatever that's not really the luxury image that you might want so lots of the destruction of stock was actually around that rather than copper rather than a copyright reason but they were rightly held to account to that and what's been interesting with someone like burberry is they've almost not as a direct response to that, but they're now being held up as one of the more sustainable brands because they are investing in a lot of different initiatives, which I think probably were coming on stream anyway, but the timing of that is such. So, I mean, they've worked with a brand, a a small brand that, that, that I'm aware of, and I've done research around called Elvis and Cressy, who themselves, they're again, a social enterprise and they take discarded um, fire hose and they turn it into luxury accessories. It's a a very small, it's small scale in terms of they're a a small business, but they, um, because obviously it's not something that we would think about generally, but when you have a fire hose, if it gets any kind of damage, obviously it can't be used. And previously these were just being thrown into landfill. And so Elvis and, and Cressy 
saw this uh, value in this waste. And so that's another really interesting direction for the fashion industry of seeing something that would potentially be waste and actually recognizing the value in that material because it's extremely mm -hmm. you know, hard wearing and, and great material. So then they've actually been working, going back to Burberry with Burberry to help them develop what they could do with their leather offcuts. Because again, these are things that we don't often think about, but when you're making a bag or a belt, you have a leather hide. You use, obviously, especially for a luxury brand, you only want to use the top quality, which is you know, the centerpiece of the hide, and you end up with all these little offcuts around the edge. And so they've been working with them to develop you know, ways of reusing some of their materials. That's one of the initiatives that they've been um, involved with. So I think a lot of, you know, a lot of these brands, sometimes they get a wake up call and then actually it's an, an impetus. And I think for, you know, the luxury industry, they definitely can't ignore these things. At the moment, the fast fashion industries, because of, I guess, a lack of legislation, um, and they still have the business model that's working for them. But it will be interesting to see what happens over the next, you know, five to 10 years, whether there's community pressure, whether there's government legislation, um, you know, to, to crack down on those bad, bus poor business practices. Because again, there is money in those businesses. You know, we see their owners and their you know, expensive cars and et cetera. But it's not, you know, it's not fairly distributed. And I think, you know, I watched some of those documentaries about some of these companies. And I think what I've, I found sad was there's a lot of energy in those companies. There's a lot of young people working in them. So, and they're lots of them are UK based. So in that sense, you kind of want to, I don't know, reward and celebrate initiative and business and young people having jobs. Let's face it. That's, that's a good thing. But then the whole business model is tipped towards, again, it's extremely extractive and lots of the extraction is coming from people. So it's a kind of exploitative mm. system, but it's something, you know, they haven't invented that system. It's something that's come as a result of the globalization of the industry and where you can pressure a manufacturer to say, well, I'll place this order with you, but only if I get this, you know, price. And when you, you know, you see a lot of it is on the price and it's cutting corners then. And I think one of the things that might have been shocking to a lot of people is to see that, you know, when we had the Leicester factory scandal, for of example, course, yeah. that a lot of that is actually happening in the UK. Because for many people, we imagine that these things are happening in other parts of the world. And we'd like to think that we're not a society that, that has that going on in it. So I think for a lot of people, through the pandemic different for different reasons you know fashion's really come under a spotlight for not for great practices unfortunately so what's the british school of fashion doing to make sure the next generation of talent entering the industry are sustainable minded and responsible that is a great question i mean for me personally i felt it's a great privilege to work in education to work with young people and i personally felt a responsibility to you know, you, you want to live your values and you want to make the industry what you want it to be. As I said, I really, as much as the conversations have been a little bit on these negative points, fashion is a fantastic creative industry. And we, we want to celebrate that. It is one of, you know, the UK is rightly known for its fashion, whether that's, you know, street fashion, whether it's the heritage brands that are hundreds of years old, we have beautiful materials, we have skilled workers. So, we want to celebrate those things and build them up. And I think what, you know, what the British School of Fashion stands for is that sort of excellence and bringing the next generations of fashion professionals into an industry that we can be, all be proud of and enjoy. So 
as GCU is, is generally, everything is underpinned by this idea of sustainable development. And just recently, um, I introduced a module in sustainable luxury for our MBA luxury brand management students. So I spent you know, several months consulting with industry, with activists, also, you know, building on my own research and experiences and designing a curriculum where we can really look at, um, at fashion and luxury through the lens of sustainability, explore the different areas, you know, the environmental, the social and the financial sustainability implications. And then really the, the idea of kind of um, informing people to make their own decisions, to take their own positions, but from an informed place. And I think that's what you know, the industry is really crying out for so whether we look at that from the perspective of you know purpose and people wanting to you know increasingly and i would say especially younger people but a lot of people want to do jobs that they can feel proud of they want to be associated with brands and businesses that they feel happy about their work and they want to contribute and that's something that i've noticed in students coming through over the last i would say like five to ten years that increasingly people want to work with purpose themselves but also from the side of the industry industry crying out for expertise in sustainability and it's crying out for innovation in terms of business models and marketing communications so it's really building those things into the curriculum so students can explore and it's often about asking questions I mean one of the, the practices that I'm very keen on is case studies I really like teaching with case studies uh, because it helps you bring your own research into the classroom, but it also puts students in a position where they can analyze a situation. You can use things like role playing, but you can think about the decisions that a business has made. So whether that's from a business that you admire and think is a great business model, whether it's from a business that you think has made a series of mistakes and you can, you know, look at that and say, you know, what were the decisions, what could have been the decisions and think about that strategically. So I think it's giving, you know, the graduates, the strategic capability to make better decisions and to join those conversations. And I think they have a really great future with that because it's exactly what the industry needs and it's absolutely ready for it at this moment. We've spoken a lot about sustainability and we've spoken a lot about responsibility, Natasha. Let's talk a bit about yourself. Where did your love of fashion come from? Well, I think it must be one of those things that's, that's fairly intrinsic because I've always had very strong feelings about clothes. But I think one of the things that it's really helped me with, I suppose, is part of your identity. I mean, humans are extremely visual. So I think it's always been really a core part of my um, identity and I think you know we all when we're teenagers our identity is a very you know strong part of us and, and fashion and music are really tied together so I would say my strongest sort of memories and inspiration around fashion were, were really about being a teenager I was obsessed with 1960s music and clothing and that's how I got into making clothes because I wanted to make things that I could wear so like many teenagers you know you rush out you buy a couple of yards of fabric and whiz up some outfit that you're going to wear out on a Saturday night so that's kind of where that came from and I think because of my interest in I suppose specifically 1960s which then sort of has expanded into general interest in history of fashion and I think I have always been really interested in the people side of it whether that was through models like Twiggy or whether that was through designers that I admired so all of those kinds of things and I think it's a really it's a really nice way of bonding and connecting and when you see someone on the street and you kind of check their outfit and they're checking yours and those kind of ways and, and you know when you're younger and you're going out to clubs and things you you tend to flock with people with a similar style so I think things came from that and I didn't really ever know that there would be a career for me 
in that because I was possibly more um, academically minded, not that fashion isn't academic, but I didn't think of it as being a career. So I always made things. Um, and then later on through having a business, like many people do, got invited in to start teaching fashion, which is actually one of the you know strengths of fashion education is that it really um, you know uses a lot of practitioners and so it's and it's a really nice way to get into education so that's kind of how how the fashion went into the education yeah, tell me about your career in academia because you've been a professor of marketing and sustainable business at the british school of fashion since august 2019 but prior to that you've had a career that's taken you all over the world what have you done beforehand yeah well my my teaching career started at the london college of fashion and i started working there i was still i uh, was running a small um, luxury children's wear business called miss fleur with a couple of my friends tiffany and carolyn and i was teaching um part-time and so i started that in the 1990s i was started doing a bit of teaching and i really really liked it and i was working at the london college of fashion which is a really international um student cohorts and and i found it just fascinating and then in 2005 I was lucky enough um, to have the opportunity to go and live in Hong Kong and so when I went to live in Hong Kong I, I was teaching there but I also took the opportunity to start studying for my doctorate in education and I looked at um, the this idea of cross-cultural creativity specifically looking at um, you know in broad terms how we understand creativity in the west and how how creativity is understood in in the east and I was really interested in that kind of similarities differences and how that's enacted and that really also led to i suppose i've got a bit of an obsession with intangible cultural heritage and that idea of place and how you know place and culture inform fashion and how we understand fashion and how we value it um, as well so i worked in hong kong for a few years and then um, i moved to north america so i was living in new york state and i was teaching there as well and then back to London and it's been I've been so lucky to have those opportunities when I was working in Hong Kong I got to work all around China so I got to visit lots of the main cities and areas in China which is was fascinating when also in Hong Kong I worked with um, a Shanghai tailor I learned how to sew the chi pao the traditional Chinese dress um, all by hand I had so many fascinating experiences went to Shanghai Fashion Week all sorts of exciting things um, and then when I was in the States as well really interesting similar to the kind of the UK system there's a history of, of fashion there which is you know has been in danger of dying away so similar to the UK a lot of offshoring and losing of skills so it was really interesting to see again similarities and differences between um, the US and the UK fashion systems and then back to London um, and yeah it's been really I've been so lucky to have those experiences and meet so many interesting people along the way and when you're I suppose when you're um, often when you're involved with things I'm very, uh, I think I'm a bit wide-eyed and, and lifelong learner, so you don't necessarily think of something as a career plan, but actually you can see, and when I, when I was preparing to give my professorial lecture, how different elements of your own experiences link together and actually make a cohesive sort of narrative. And I think without some of those experiences, the way that, I'm, that I think about sustainable fashion and responsible business wouldn't really be the same so i think it's and i think it's that kind of global responsibility aspect that's been really you know interesting for me to think about and i think for our students many of whom are global citizens whether they're you know in the uk or based in other parts of the world i think there's such a different mentality for young people and the industry is such a global industry that it's really important that we have that kind of perspective 
Final question, Natasha. Say, for instance, I wanted to pack in the communications game and start my own fashion business. What are your what are your top three bits of advice for someone who's looking to start a fashion business and make sure that it's both sustainable and responsible? I think the first thing, and this is a bit of a tricky one, is is, is do we need any more fashion businesses? So that is a really big question. <laughs> I think people have to ask themselves. And then I think what I would do, and I've encouraged our students to do this, is almost like find some role models. So find people whose work you really admire. And it's been interesting for us at the British School of Fashion. Um, one of our honorary professors is Christopher Rayburn, and he has a fantastic he has a fantastic business and a really great business model and is extremely generous sharing you know his ideas and his practices so i think find someone that you admire and learn from them so i mean you know if we think about the sustainable development goals sdg 17 is about partnership and whether that's an actual you know physical practical partner or whether you just look to someone and say well how are they doing things and, and one of the um areas that he's looked at again is is reusing things that would otherwise be wasted and kind of this idea of zero waste and not having overproduction so i think if you're having a business now you've got to think about the end of the chain mm -hmm. almost before the beginnings so you've got to think about and i think the idea as well of how can you contribute in a positive way so how can you support your local or international community with the work that you're doing so i, I guess thinking about unpacking each stage and working out how you can make good partnerships and make positive contributions but I mean above all fashion you know it should be fun and it should be about pleasure so I think just you know finding your purpose within you what delights you what's the thing that you're interested in because also what's great about the fashion industry is there's so many different aspects to it so we often think of design and clothing but actually you know we need people who can um you know manage supply chain more responsibly we need people who can come up with creative marketing we need people to think about you know some of the issues that we have so i think you know finding your that your the passion your interest uh, in it uh, i mean i don't wish to discourage people from being entrepreneurial because i think it's a great skill of people in the uk are extremely entrepreneurial but also i think small is beautiful at the moment and i think that idea about you know collaborating and not trying to be the next huge thing actually keeping things small keeping them local these are all the sorts of things that have come out of the the kind of pandemic uh thinking in terms of strategy keep things local keep things small scale um and educate yourself and there's a lot of different resources out there for that natasha that was absolutely brilliant thank you very much for talking to me today oh you're welcome it's been my pleasure thank you I'd also like to thank everyone for listening to this show and I hope you can join us again soon when we'll be talking with another member of staff from Glasgow Caledonian University. In the meantime, please subscribe to this podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you're listening to us from. Until then, I've been Craig Telfer and this has been The Common Good Podcast. <laughs>